friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I don't have a co-hostess today. I'm all on my own, but I do have some amazing guests, as I always do. At the bottom of the hour, we'll have my good friend, Mary Fiorito. We're going to talk to her about the very important abortion case the Supreme Court has decided to take up this fall concerning a Mississippi abortion ban at 15 weeks of pregnancy. Mary is a Cardinal Francis George Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's also an attorney, public speaker, and commentator on issues involving women's leadership in the church. She has great insights for us. But first, we turn to Father Thomas Petrie, also a friend of the show's and a personal friend. He is the president of the faculty at the Dominican House of Studies. He's joining us to discuss the topic of Eucharistic coherence, you know, over and above the politics of who should be, what politicians should be receiving communion or not. And really above the politics and much more important than the politics is our understanding of the Eucharist, the importance of the Eucharist in our lives and its meaning. Congratulations on your new appointment, Father. Thank you, Gracie. It's been a really an excellent year, even though we've had a pandemic. We've just kept doing what we do and have persevered like some, like everyone else has. And, you know, we just finished a great year. We had classes in person and the, the student brothers and our lay students uh, just learning all they can of St. Thomas Aquinas and wonderful church teaching to evangelize the country, evangelize the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I wish I could transport myself in time, place, and, and join you. <laughs> oh, it would yeah. be wonderful. We we do have uh, we do have uh, lady students uh, in our in our school, and so a lot of sisters, but also a lot of lay students who are getting master's degrees to go on and serve the church in many wonderful ways. I often I dream of studying Saint Thomas Aquinas. It's something that I think all Catholics should have that deep understanding of theology that he brings to our faith. Oh, absolutely! And I tell you, the hope is not lost for you, Gracie. I oh. want to continue to hope for this because you know every summer we. Have a we have a six week program, and if you come four summers in a row, you get a you get a master's in Thomistic studies. And, oh wow! In, in Saint Thomas's theology. So I'm not much sure my, ready, I have enough uh, empty brain cells for that. That's a very that's that's very intelligent. You have to be very intelligent, don't you, to understand well, to do undertake well, this kind I of mean, thing. Intelligence, as Saint Thomas himself would say, intelligence. We can speak of intelligence in many ways, right? So uh, you know, it's a very it's it's a theology that even the beginner can understand understand and the proficient and the master can still learn from. You know who's helped me a lot? I have one of my sons who's 21 now. He went to a very good school, very a Jesuit school that forms the, the boys very well here in Miami. And they learned so much, so much good theology from St. Thomas Aquinas. And he was able to transmit it to explain things to me that I had never understood. So that, yeah, was, amazing. that was quite humbling having my, at that time he was 16 or 17 and he was, I was like, say that again, explain it to me again. No, that's wonderful. That's really great. You know, and one of the things that St. Thomas is so good at is explaining the, the Eucharist, what the Eucharist is, how it connects us to God, what it, the power of, of this amazing sacrament that for many Catholics is available to them every single day. Well, St. Thomas's theology of the Eucharist, if I can be somewhat bold and presumptuous here, it is the theology of the Church. The Church essentially adopted St. Mm. Thomas's theology of transubstantiation and the real presence. He's the one that articulated this. It wasn't as clear exactly how Christ was present in the Eucharist until the 13th century, until St. Thomas articulated this more clearly. Why did it take uh, so many years and, and a genius like St. Thomas to come to this? Why was it so obscure? What we always have believed, of course, is that the, the Eucharist is the presence of Jesus Christ, the real presence of Jesus Christ. The question was always, how is he present? You know, how is he present when we have the appearances of bread and wine. And the language, I mean, so often God reveals his mysteries and the human mind, even the mind of the church and the mind of great geniuses over centuries, don't, don't, don't doesn't always have the language or the words to 
explain mm-hmm. the mystery that God has revealed. And so it really took uh, until St. Thomas, while there was right faith and Orthodox faith in the real presence, exactly how the appearances and the substance of Christ are related, that word that we use, transubstantiation, was basically invented to explain this mystery. We just didn't have the language, and it just took time to, and a lot of error on the way, people making errors on the way to understand exactly how Christ is present. I mean, one good example would be, you know, we say, we know that Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And he's present in the host, body as body, but his, you know, we use that word concomitance because his body now is no longer separated from the blood or his soul or divinity, uh, so that when you receive just the host, you receive not just the body, but everything, the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And the same with, with the precious blood. You're receiving the blood, but you're receiving the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So we, we say that he's present. But see, what's interesting is even in the 11th century, 10th century, you get people insisting that he's present in a physical way so that when you eat the host, you're actually, to put it sort of somewhat graphically, you're actually gnawing on Christ or, or you know, putting bite marks into his flesh in heaven, you know, like you're chewing on him, you know. But that's clearly not what that's not the, what we believe, right? We're not we're not cannibals on this front, and so it's Saint Thomas who really kind of clarifies, and this is the Church's position that while the physical Christ is present because his body is present, he's not present in a physical way, the way you and I are present physically. You know, you sitting at your desk in Miami, me sitting at my desk here in Washington D.C. He's present in a sacramental way, so it's a different mode or a different way of presence, a real presence, but different, not a physical presence, like your presence is physical or my presence is physical. So that's a very nuanced point that St. Thomas sort of articulated, that the physical Christ is present, but not in a physical way. It's interesting how Jesus in his in the Gospels tells us this, right? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood. And, it, and it's such a, a shocking thing to say that people fall away from him, his followers fall away, and they can't internalize it. And then it takes hundreds of years for for the details to be worked out in such a way that human beings can start to wrap their heads around a mystery, which I, I suppose, Father, in many ways is is ultimately beyond us. Yeah, in many ways it is. And really the crux of the mystery, certainly as St. Thomas understood it, using Aristotle's sort of science, is that when you have the Blessed Sacrament in front of you and you have the appearances of bread and wine, you know, to use Thomas's language, he calls them accidents. You know, we call them accidents or, yeah, just appearances. Those appearances, and this is where the mystery really is, they're not attached to anything. Because usually appearances or accidents are attached to a substance. Here we have the appearances of bread and wine. They taste like bread. They taste like wine. They look like bread. They feel like bread, look like wine, feel like wine. But there's no wine there. There's no bread there. This this can't be emphasized enough. The bread and the wine are gone. The substance of bread and wine are gone the moment the consecration happens. That's the mystery we believe, which means that the appearances remain. But the substance of bread and wine is gone, and now present is the substance of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. But then, here's the second part of the mystery, and I hope I'm not getting too sort of into the weeds here. But the second part of the mystery is this, that the, the appearances of bread and wine are not attached to the substance of Christ in that sense. Like, they're not his appearances. He doesn't appear like bread or wine. He's there. That's why it's a mystery. Does that make sense? Like he's there under, if you will, Asked by the appearances of bread and wine, but they're not in any way attached. They're not his. He doesn't appear like bread or wine. So we can't say that Christ becomes bread or he becomes wine. It's not like he's becoming incarnate in some way in bread or wine. He's there mysteriously, but yet also the appearances of bread and wine are still there mysteriously because the bread and wine themselves are is no longer there. Does that make sense at all? It does, uh, but it's very complicated. And I think a lot of people, when when they hear all the words of accident and substance, and maybe their their heart falters in a sense, no? And they say, well, I can never understand it. But do you think that it's so important to understand it, or is it so important to be just floored by the majesty of that moment? Well, I think it's both, right? I think, I mean, as a good Dominican, I would say the first, you know, we often experience the mystery first. 
And so to have that really be, as you say, to be floored by the mystery and then the Dominican, because, you know, you know, we believe that, of course, God created the mind and that he wants us to know him. Being floored by that mystery, we seek to understand it and to mm. know it. You know, St. Anselm speaks of faith as faith seeking understanding, right? Mm-hmm. So that we want to try to understand it. And so this is the best possible way. Like, where is actually the mystery? Because if, you know, simply to say, well, he's present under bread and wine. Okay, well, that's great. But see, then the question becomes, well, is it a symbol or is it not a symbol? Is it a real presence? Well, what do you mean by real presence? What do you mean by sacramental presence? And then working all that out as the church has done, and especially through the theology of St. Thomas, actually further creates wonder and awe mm-hmm. in you to be even more floored by the grand mystery because now you're now you're looking at the you're looking at the blessed sacrament and the monstrance and you're like yep there they are there's the appearances of bread but the bread's not there Christ is there and those appearances are not those aren't they're not attached to him in any way you know they're not they're not coming out of him in any way he's holding the appearances in in place in existence while he himself is present. This is an interesting thing for St. Thomas, the Eucharist, the Euch- what we call the Eucharistic change, the change, and even using the word change is kind of a misnomer for St. Thomas, but the change for St. Thomas from the bread, or wine, bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ at the consecration is a change that is unlike any other kind of change that you can ever witness physically in the world, and he says it's also unlike the act of God creating the universe. Like, it's its own sort of thing that's very different even from God's act of creation, that God is doing something every time there's a consecration on an altar. God is doing some, uh, he is doing a radical act uh, of transformation, transubstantiation, that um, is radically unlike anything else ever witnessed in the history of the world or creation. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Father Thomas Petrie. He's a dear friend of the show and also president of the Pontifical Faculty of the Dominican House of Studies. Father, you say that it brings, uh, it gives me shivers <laughs> when you talk about how spectacularly impressive that moment is that God is sharing with us. And and he's doing it every day all across the world. Many of us, not all of us, unfortunately, but many of us have access to daily mass and be present at this, at this tremendous moment. It's a really a shame that most more people don't understand the value of it and and run run to be there at that moment every day. Well, no, that's right. I mean, of course, you know, the church only requires people to go on Sundays. I mean, because this is the day of the Lord to give Him praise. But the Eucharist, you're right, is it's it, it's so many things. I mean, it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ Himself, and that's. And so it's the sacrament of sacraments. We call it the most blessed sacrament. See, in the other sacraments, like confession. What you're receiving is the power of Christ, Christ's mercy, his forgiveness in baptism, you know, his infusion of grace. So you're receiving Christ's power and all the other sacraments. But in the Eucharist, you're not receiving the power of Christ or some activity of Christ for you. You're receiving Christ himself. And in receiving Christ himself, you're thereby receiving not only, you know, second person, the Trinity, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, you're also receiving the one who has conquered sin and death, which is why we say that the Eucharist is the antidote to death and the remedy for sin so that the more we receive him the more we're actually configured to him and the other interesting thing about receiving the sacrament and why receiving daily is is important but you know anytime we receive to remember this that it's a communion it's not just a communion it's often we, we when we think about the mass as communion we think well it's we we can have a protestant view of it was well, a communion of us with each other and it certainly is that but it's also so, and more importantly, a communion of us with Christ. It's a common union of us with Christ. So, you know, St. Hildegard of Bingen, I believe it was, who said this, she went on She went on a sort of a fast from the Eucharist. I'm pretty sure this was St. Hildegard. She was, because she didn't feel herself worthy to receive the Eucharist, right? And so the Lord appeared to her and challenged her, why aren't you receiving Holy Communion? In probably much more elaborate language. <laughs> and and he, uh, she said to him, in effect, Lord, I am not worthy 
worthy to receive you into me. And he looked at her and said, yes, but I am most worthy to receive you into me. Oh, how beautiful, Father. So we have to remember that. So when, when we receive communion, Christ is coming into us, but we are also being united to him mm-hmm. more profoundly at every communion. And we believe not just him, all those who are in Christ. There's this great line in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's in the section on funerals where it actually speaks of the living of family members continuing to relate or to commune with their deceased loved ones through communion with Jesus Christ. So that when we receive communion, we're not only receiving Christ, we're receiving all who are in him. And that that is, in fact, how we relate, for example, to our loved ones on the other side. We relate to them no longer face-to-face, but through the mediation of Jesus Christ, who is the bridge between the living and the dead, right? So that in some ways you can say the the closer you are to Christ, the closer you are to those who are in Christ, which includes our loved ones who who have gone before us. So many tremendous Tremendous concepts around around the Eucharist. So many things that that we need to internalize. And the bishops we're talking about this because the bishops are drafting a document, and there are political implications to that. Uh, setting the politics aside, the fact that the bishops are, are drafting this document. It, it must indicate something which has been very apparent to me over the last few decades, that people have lost their understanding of, of the power of the Eucharist, the, the meaning, the worthiness that we have to aim for, or at least try to, to bring clean souls as we can in a state of grace to the Eucharist. What do you think, Father? Is that what the well, bishops are responding to? Oh, abs- I think absolutely. I think this comes from, because remember, they're not only drafting this document, which despite the press that we seen is primarily not about politicians mm-hmm. receiving communion. Totally. It's about Eucharistic coherence and the fact that the Eucharist needs to be the center of our lives, the source and summit of our faith. And don't forget, they're also at the same time planning what they're calling this Eucharistic revival and you know, trying to, I like your word, gin up support for Eucharistic missionaries to come to preach and to understand the mystery of the Eucharist and to teach it. This, some of this comes from polls that we've just seen in the last few years that what 69 70 percent of catholics don't understand or don't believe in the real in the real presence or at least self-identified catholics don't understand or don't believe in the real presence i have to say personally i look i'm all in you know i support the bishops and what they want to do and i think yeah you know let's let's get things done on paper let's get some programs in place but i think one of the reasons that we've lost a certain uh, reverence or understanding of the real presence is because the way we celebrate worship, the way we celebrate Mass, which is to say the divine worship of God uh, in the Eucharist has faltered in so, for, for so many decades in the celebration of Mass. You know, we, we tend, it's, and in many places for years, it was sort of watered down. You know, St. Thomas says the ritual of the Mass, because here's the question, right? If the Eucharist is what we believe and receiving it is as important as you and I just spoke about, Gracie. Why do, Why at the Mass do we do all of this other stuff? I mean, why do we read Scripture? Why does the priest dress the way he does? Why are there all there's... In other words, why... St. Thomas actually asked this in the Summa, Summa Theologiae. You know, why don't we just... And I'm, 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 I'm translating a little bit, but why Why don't we just, conse- you know, consecrate the host, receive, and then go home? You know, I mean, if it's so... If that's the most... Why don't we just do that, like, over and over and over again? Why all of this pageantry, we might say? St. Thomas uses, uh, he actually uses the words, uh, why does the priest make all these ridiculous gestures? You know, he calls it, he calls it gesticulationes ridiculosae in Latin, you know, ridiculous gestures. Why does he do all of this? And for St. Thomas, the answer is quite clear, because notice how the Mass is kind of front-loaded. All the stuff happens up front, and once you receive communion, there's not much left to Mass, right? right. I mean, there's... So for St. Thomas, all everything that happens in the Mass is about creating the disposition in the faithful mm. so that they not only believe, but that they also receive worthily and with reverence, right? So the whole ritual from reading the scriptures, from the Gloria, the Creed, the Eucharistic prayer, the homily, all of that is really directed, the chanting should all be directed <clears throat> to making the faithful, helping them at that moment they receive to receive in the best possible state. 
state in the best possible way. And I think if we are honest with ourselves, I mean, I certainly, you know, growing up, went to a lot of masses where that certainly didn't seem to be the case, right? It seemed like there were other ends, like entertainment, we needed to be engaged, we needed to participate. And so I, I honestly think that for Eucharistic revival, we also need a revival of what Pope Benedict the Sixteenth refers to as the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating Mass well, you know, and devoutly. Sometimes priests uh, celebrate with a lot of reverence, and sometimes they don't. I Not to criticize, but I think that when you see uh, the priest celebrating with that that measured solemn that that depth uh, the pauses the pregnant pauses <laughs> when you know that he's praying so deeply i think it infects the rest of us who are watching and participating with a sense of that majesty of that moment that's happening I think that's right. I, and and I, I think priests know that. I mean, now, every priest has, you know, off days where sometimes you're, I mean, I hope this isn't scandalous, just trying to get through the Mass, you know, uh, just like some daily communicants. You can have that where you're kind of zoning right through the Mass, you know. Oh, uh, never. Believe it or not. Never, Father. <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not, that sometimes happens to priests. I mean, it's, uh, I will confess to you and your listeners, on occasion, I would say I've been ordained 12 years. I think this has happened to me a handful of times where I got to the Our Father. I had to look at the altar server and say, did we, did we, did we, concentrate? Do? <laughs> did, we did we do that part I, already? <laughs> I somehow zoned out. <laughs> you know. um, so yeah, that can happen. But I think there, there was a time in America, certainly, and that certainly in other parts of the world where priests were kind of formed that it was their responsibility to keep the faithful engaged, if you will, in the liturgy, mm. to keep them engaged in the mass. And therefore they had to be creative and dynamic. I mean, it was, it was, it's the culture, you know, everything is about entertainment yes. and enter- entertainment. And I think that has been really detrimental to uh, sacramental worship in the Catholic Church just across the world, really, this idea that uh, Mass has to be entertaining and engaging. You know, I, think my, has, I think it has to be solemn and prayerful. My, you know? my husband's a convert father of now about, about 17 years since he converted from he was an atheist Jew I would say would be fair okay. would be fair to call him he has slowly over the over many years come to that realization that the center piece of the mass is the consecration and it took him a long time but it's been beautiful to watch to watch that process because I think we do bring this idea that we're there to be entertained we're there to be emotionally engaged we want to feel things you know when when we we want a fabulous homily (laughs) we want all these things and slowly slowly over the years I watched him come to that beautiful realization that here in that moment you know the whole world of heaven and earth is concentrated on the altar in that one moment and we get to be there and how spectacular that is and everything else can fall away yes absolutely absolutely I mean yes we do want priest to preach better. I think even priests kind of agree. We, but yeah, I like how you use the word emotionally engaged. I think that's been really part of it. We, we live in a culture now, and this is not just in America, I think it's everywhere, that somehow identifies closeness with God or the effects of grace with emotional consolation. That's just not the teaching of the church. I mean, the teaching of the church is that grace is imperceptible. Like, you can have signs that you're living in grace. You know, for instance, you kind of like to pray. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't hate going to church, you know, you go to church, you know, but, and God certainly does give us consolation at at times, but that's, that's rare, you know, just having the warm and fuzzies in your, in your worship or your relationship with God is not actually indicative of your position, you know, vis-a-vis salvation or holiness. We, obviously, you and I both know, and our listeners know that that unfortunately the Catholic Church loses more people than it gains year after mm-hmm. year, whether, you know, the normal death process, but also we lose people who were practicing as children with their families and they become adults and they fall away. Do you think that relearning, reteaching, reaccepting the, the real presence in the Eucharist, do you think that that's a fabulous way to stop this process, to, to, to reverse it? Yeah, I think so. And I think in some of these ways we've been talking about, you know, having beautiful liturgy, uh, having good preaching, having a parish that has good catechesis, you know, and obviously through a lot of prayer, but also having people, and this is, 
something, you know, Pope Francis speaks about just, I think this week spoke about this, that being not simply speakers of the word, but doers of it, to be, to real, be really witnesses of the greatness of Christ, the love of Christ, but how wonderful and amazing it is in the Eucharist, you know, and I think those who especially are committed to daily communion become real viable evangelists for the amazing sacramental effects and the amazing mystery of, of the most blessed sacrament in their lives. As people see how you move through your life and, you know, my comment on it to just simply to say it's 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 my Lord. I, re- I receive my Lord every day in the Eucharist, you know? Yeah. My husband and I are daily communicants. We come to a point in our lives <laughs> that we don't know what to do if we wake up in the morning and we can't go to Mass. I mean, our, yeah. our, whole, our whole understanding of our day is just crushed. <laughs> yeah, as it should be. I mean, this is, this is really, this is important. I mean, this is how a religious lives, you know? I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think the whole religious tradition, I know it's not always possible for the lay faithful, but, you know, in, my, in our life, we have Mass in the morning. I mean, more, Mass is the first thing we do every day. Everything goes out from that, really. I mean, for me, if I can't, you know, as a priest, if I can't celebrate Mass with the community because I have an appointment or something, you know, an early doctor's appointment, then I have to celebrate Mass privately alone in one of our side altars. Um, if it's not until later in the day, my whole day is kind of dragging, you know, mm-hmm. because <laughs> just because I haven't celebrated Mass yet. Well, I hope that a lot of our listeners have learned so much from you, Father Petrie, today as I have. I want to become a Thomistic scholar, <laughs> maybe in maybe in my next decade. Right now, yes, it's a little beyond me. Yes, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. I know you still have children at home, but once once you know those responsibilities have, I don't want to say finished, but actually move into the next chapter, you should come see us. Oh, well, that would be a dream, Father. And thank you so much for joining us. It was really wonderful to learn so much with you, Father, about the Eucharist and Holy Communion and how we all have to get back to that understanding and how the bishops are helping us. So thank you. And uh, to learn more about Father Petrie, check him out on Twitter at PetrieOP, that's P-E-T-R-I-O-P, or visit dhs.edu. Thank you, Father. God bless you, Gracie. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And next up, we have my good friend, Mary Fiorito. We're going to talk to her about the very important abortion case that the Supreme Court has decided to take up this fall concerning a Mississippi abortion ban at 15 weeks. Mary is a Cardinal Francis George Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's also an attorney, a public speaker, and a commentator on issues involving women's leadership in the Catholic Church. I should add, she's also one of the smartest women in the U.S. Welcome back to the show, Mary. Well, thank you, Gracie. It's so wonderful to be with you and your listeners today. Well, Mary, I was telling in the introduction, I was saying that you're one of my favorite people, and it's true, oh. one of the smartest well, we women have a in America. we admiration society, mutual <laughs> admiration society, Gracie, because you're one of mine, one of my favorite people on Twitter. Oh. If your listeners follow you on Twitter, they, they definitely are missing out on one of the great defenders of life on Twitter. Who's oh, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I really, I really try to focus. I mean, there's a lot of ugly voices on Twitter, but I try to, I try to show, uh, well, I do show, I think from my, my radiology work, I like to show pictures of ultrasounds of, of babies. And, and I think that the most important thing that we can always, that we always need to focus on when we talk about abortion is the humanity of the child. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a human being. It's a person that we need to embrace and welcome and love from the moment of conception. And, um, you know, amazingly, the Supreme Court is about to hear a case where this is an issue. Is, is this, is this little life that's being snuffed out? Is this a person? Is this a, is this someone that's worthy of protection by the state? Yes. And yeah, in fact, the the Supreme Court, when they granted certiorari, which means their agreement to hear a case, are limiting the question in this particular case to just one issue. And that is whether all pre-viability abortions are unconstitutional. So this will be a fascinating decision to watch, and oral arguments should be equally interesting. The case is called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Clinic, and Dobbs is uh, the name of the person who is the the gentleman who is the state health officer for the um, Mississippi Department of Public Health, and then the Jackson Women's Health Clinic uh, is a strangely named abortion clinic, actually, Um, and they have... um, 
They have attempted to uh, to stop from enforcement a law passed by the state of Mississippi that limits the gestational age of abortion. So it's called the Gestational Age Act, and it was passed in March of 2018. Um, it does contain exceptions for medical emergencies and for fetal abnormalities or uh, conditions that are incompatible with lengthy life, but it doesn't contain exceptions for rape or incest, and it would limit abortion gestationally to 15 weeks. Now, it's important when we're, you know, talking about this to, to understand that that is really where most of the Western world is. Yes, very important. Um, right. And most, uh, we're only one of seven nations in the world, in fact, the United States is, that permit abortion legally after 20 weeks. The other nations are Canada, China, Netherlands, North Korea, yes. Vietnam, Singapore. You know, I want to add another nation because nobody mentions Cuba, but Cuba, Cuba yeah. promotes, Cuba. it's not only legal, Cuba, Cuba promotes abortion through all 40 weeks of pregnancy because as in all other communist countries life is cheap and you know severing that vital connection that is made when within a woman when she's pregnant you know a woman she becomes a family her and the baby and the father it's a family and everywhere you have totalitarianism the the state is very invested in severing all those beautiful connections Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very sad when you speak to women, especially from, you know, people who are involved in Project Rachel-like ministry in, you know, either communist countries or former communist countries, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, there, the, the, the abortion aftermath sort of ministry is really challenged because many of the women have had two, three, four abortions. And in some parts of Russia or the Ukraine, the numbers are even higher. You know, average abortion numbers are seven, eight or nine. Mary, I've seen, I, I've seen young women from Cuba uh, with 17, 18, and 20 abortions. Right. And it's 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 tr- it's tremendously traumatic, but also, too, of course, then affects their ability to have children when they are married and, and actually, you know, have a want to have a wanted pregnancy. Uh, they can't because of all the damage to their uterus and to their other reproductive organs done during the abortions. And so it's, a, it's just a tragedy that's compounded by, you know, infertility that's, in, you know, compounded by despondence and guilt. And it's, I mean, what people have suffered under communism is it's it's almost unimaginable to the average American. And, and as you know, we're approaching Independence Day. We should be so grateful to God. Oh, so true, for, but Yeah, the freedoms that we have to do the good, right? And and we would believe along with St. Augustine that freedom, what, what true freedom is, is the freedom to do good. You, God doesn't give us freedom to do bad things like abortion, like kill other vulnerable people. Freedom is meant for the good. And but you know, Mary, that's, in, in America, do we have the freedom to choose an abortion regime which is not barbaric like the one we have now? Yeah, well, of course we do. And, you know, Justice Thomas has, you know, um, I think very eloquently talked about, you know, how abortion doesn't have a shred of support uh, were his direct words from the Constitution's text, and you just you, you look at even you know pro-choice legal scholars, uh, Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, and Lazarus, who was the former law clerk to Roe's author, Justice Harry Blackman, who wrote Roe. His former law clerk said, as a matter of constitutional interpretation and judicial method, Roe versus Wade borders on the indefensible. He said, I'm utterly committed to the right to choose, and I'm someone who believes that such a right has somewhere uh, grounding in the Constitution. But he said, the problem with Roe is that has so little connection to the Constitution, to the right that it purportedly interpreted, and a constitutional right to privacy is not broad enough to include abortion. And, you know, the late Justice Ginsburg said something similar, that Roe is a bad... It's badly decided law. It's, you know, um, for those who, who don't really understand where Roe came from, it was said to have emanated from a penumbra of the 14th Amendment, which gave this kind of vague right to privacy, which entitled women to terminate pregnancies up until the moment of birth. So, you know, people often say that Roe legalized abortion. That's not really accurate because abortion was already legal in a handful of states. For example, California, New York, Colorado, you know, back in the 19, late 1960s had already um, legalized abortion in a in many cases. Um, So what Roe did was to say that any states who had enacted laws that restricted abortion in any way were acting unconstitutionally and in one fell swoop undid every single state abortion law and abortion restriction. But that, 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 undid, that undid our democratic process of choosing of, of choosing the laws that we, that we allow to govern us. And, and these are moral choices that people are making. 
Correct. And, you know, and, and, and even if it would result in sort of a patchwork of laws, um, you know, this is the, the reason that there has been such, uh, such fierce battles on either side about Roe, because it was decided in such a way that it took any kind of democratic process away from the people. Mm-hmm. It took away the, the ability of doctors like yourself to weigh in to say, you know, well, wait a second, at this gestational age, you know, we can't say that there's not fetal pain. You know, um, it, it took away the right of psychologists and psychiatrists to weigh in saying, no, there are negative psychological impact uh, impacts for women um, who have had abortions. It, it took away the ability of all those people who were experts to weigh in to talk about harms that have happened to women. Um, everything, again, as I mentioned at the outset about Cuba, you know, in, in infertility to, you know, a host of post-abortion aftermath psychological issues to, you know, a- any number of other complications that arise from, you know, such a such an extensive abortion regime. Right now in Illinois, the state where I live in, we have a parental notification law. It is not parental consent. It is simply notification. But every state that borders us has some kind of parental involvement law. Well, in the last four years and in the middle of a pandemic, Planned Parenthood opened three new mega clinics in Illinois, one at the Missouri border, one at the Wisconsin border, and one at the Indiana border. And then, oh, much to our surprise, Planned Parenthood and its allies have attempted to now to repeal Illinois' parental notification of abortion. And we have been working with sex trafficking experts who said to us, if Illinois does this, you are going to become the sex trafficking capital of the Midwest because, obviously, traffickers look for, I mean, reputable studies not done by pro-life groups show that at least 30% of all trafficked girls, first of all, the average age of a trafficked girl is between 15 and 17. The average number of those girls who have had abortions, somewhere between 30 and 40%, and the majority of those girls say the abortions were not their choice. They were taken by their traffickers to abortion clinics. So we know that, you know, that abortion is being used by sex traffickers to cover up evidence of crime, to continue to allow girls to be trafficked, right? Because no one, uh, or I shouldn't say no one, but very few men want to have sex with a you know significantly pregnant teenager. And so it really has, it, it's led to a whole whole host of other social issues that are just horrifying. And uh, we, you know, the pro-life movement in Illinois, we fought this tooth and nail. And thank goodness we prevailed in this session of the Illinois General Assembly, but they'll be back in the fall. And I mean, again, it, it just defies logic why you would not want parents to know about such an invasive procedure, permanent procedure, surgical procedure being done on a minor child. Mary, what about the the threat of instability, insurrection, violence? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm starting. I'm trying to. Th- I'm remembering the the women's march and all that stuff when right. when Trump was elected. What about that? Like threats of just unrest? Because I feel yeah, well, like that. I, I feel like that's in the air. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you, and I think you know the other side is already. Again, this is a big fundraising moment for them too. You have to remember. So you know they are trying to. They're raising the specter of you know back alley abortions and you know, women being maimed, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of these things we know aren't going to happen. If if they allow the, Mis- the Mississippi law to stand, it will impact Mississippi, right? But that will give other states opportunities um, who want to enact laws that, again, the majority of Americans agree with. The majority of first world countries have as their actual operating law that, you know, abortion really should be restricted to those. Not that this is where we are morally or agree. I want to make sure I'm making myself clear here. However, it does, it does end some of the bar barbaric later term abortion you know, procedures that you know about because you're a physician and I know about from all my work in the movement and no need to horrify people with them here. But suffice it to say, they're they're horrifying. You know, it was interesting. I was just being interviewed by a Catholic deacon who is a retired veterinarian and uh, he was working on abortion legislation um, with, with part of his state legislature that would, um, that would ban abortion. I think it was after 20 weeks. They were working on a 20-week ban and he was talking about the method that's used. Uh, you help me out here. What's the, the digestion? when that is injected mm-hmm. and the baby's heart into the baby's heart and he said to me do you know that as a vet I would lose my license if I did a digoxin injection into an animal that I had not previously sedated or was unconscious I'd you know, you know what do that because you go through the pleural cavity you know what this I mean, is reminding me of 
recent, not recently, a couple years ago, I wanted to put down our old dog. Aww. And there was good reason. It was, yes. she was, she was suffering. Yeah. And I, I couldn't find a vet to put her down. You know why? Oh, really? Because vets why? have, they have soft hearts. Yeah. They kept telling me, no, but you know, I'm sure that she could live a little longer. And I said, but she's in pain. And, and I, and I, eventually after I called like seven vets, I started to say, you know, it's, can you believe that we live in a country where it's easier to get an abortion and inject a baby's hearts with digoxin than to put an old suffering dog down because vets yeah. have softer hearts than abortionists? How yeah. can this be? Yeah. And, and they're aware of the suffering. I mean, he, you know, he did say, you know, I have to go through, if I'm doing that, I'm going through a pleural cavity. And if that animal's not sedated, that animal's going to suffer. He said, so you can literally lose your license if you do that. Yeah, it's cruel. I just thought that was, fa- yeah, exactly. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. But, um, Wait, but Mary, no, it, what happens? What's what's the mechanics of what happens if, in fact, uh, Mississippi succeeds at the Supreme Court? And are, are there a couple different scenarios of how they could succeed? Yeah, I, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how you know the court has in, in this this past term ruled unanimously or close to unanimously on a couple of, of cases where people were quite surprised for example you know the uh, the adoption case in uh, coming out of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. uh, where the court ruled unanimously that the city of Philadelphia could not discriminate against Catholic adoption agencies by forcing them to place children with uh, same-sex couples that they could they could continue to operate as they have for the last hundred years and they did not have have to you know place do, do the placements that were against their religious beliefs that was a unanimous decision so everyone now i think is kind of speculating boy if they were unanimous on that which i think a, a lot of the court watchers were thinking oh well at least you know we'll, we'll get kagan and sotomayor on, on on this one and they didn't and so um you know, it's it's interesting to see how the court seems to kind of be gelling as a whole. You know, these these crazy predictions that that Amy Coney Barrett was going to be, you know, part of wacky rulings that didn't have a basis. And in fact, you remember some confirmation hearings where it was just they brought forth the Democrats brought forth family after family after family who they believe because of Amy Coney Barrett were, were going to lose their Obamacare health insurance. That's right. And in fact, that ruling went exactly the other way. There was never any threat to Obamacare. They knew it. They just wanted to try to disparage the person of Amy Coney Barrett. So um, it, you know, again, what I'm hoping this won't be is another uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was the Supreme Court decision that sort of modified Roe. It, it jettisoned what the court had used in Roe, which was the trimester framework, and it sort of jettisoned that and replaced it with a viability f- framework. But even viability itself, that's a moving number. You know, I mean, there was just uh, two days ago, uh, CNN had a story about uh, the Guinness World Book of Records was broken again, uh, uh, surviving baby 21 weeks two days from minnesota uh, guinness verified it he went home he, he just had his first birthday 21 weeks two days amazing uh, was born at 22 weeks roe was of course divided pregnancy up into trimesters most abortion clinics i mean here in the united states uh, we say viability is about 23 24 weeks our abortion clinics in the chicago area do elective abortions so healthy mom healthy baby uh, they do those right up until 24 weeks even though we know i mean in the in the neonatal intensive care units in the chicago area babies are regularly being saved in the 22 23 week range and 24 weeks is is practically not even an issue anymore i mean most 24 weekers survive so you know so that's a moving and you know it's factor. probably it's probably less traumatic for the mother to have- have a C-section than one of those horrendous, exactly. rip yourself exactly. apart abortions where they drag yeah. the baby out in little pieces. Well, and it takes two days. I mean, and, and maybe we could just briefly touch on that, you know, and you know this as a physician, our friend, Dr. Tony Levitino, who's a former abortion provider, did second trimester abortions, but then, you know, had a conversion experience, stopped doing them, um, and he worked in maternal phenol medicine. So he, you know, dealt with the sickest moms carrying the sickest babies. And he said there was never one mom I ever treated where I had to do an abortion to save her life. And he gave uh, an example of, of a woman who comes in and presents with severe preeclampsia. And he said, you know, sky high blood pressure. He said, in order to do an abortion at, say, 20 weeks, 22 weeks, I have to first manually dilate her cervix. That's going to take me one to two days. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, she's sitting with blood pressure that's so high that she could die of a stroke at any moment. And you can do a C-section in seven and a half minutes. Well, exactly. And he said, <laughs> other than... 
you know, I can gas her and then do a C-section and get that baby out and get her treated. And he said, you know, did every baby I, I treated with a mother with severe preeclampsia live? No, every one of them didn't, but they all had a chance. And I never lost one mom. Right. And he was mom. never and he was never the direct killer of a child and neither was Correct. the mother, which, Correct. you know, that that has to in a moral universe that has to count for a lot. Mary, yes, no, I'm not. sorry to say that we're completely out of time, but please come back on. Uh, I, maybe. I was going to say, I was just going to invite myself. But now yes, no, no. Oh, you don't always I would love that. Thank you. And I'd love to be able to keep your listeners updated on this case as it progresses. You know, um, if you want to learn more about Mary Fiorito and her report and her important work, go to eppc.org. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Gracie. Have a beautiful day. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry. It's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday as we head with him to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. It's a scene that should bring those who truly love Jesus almost to the point of tears. Jesus came to his hometown. He already had a famous reputation for the teachings and miracles he had worked throughout Galilee. He had cast out demons, cured the paralyzed and sick, and taught with authority unlike any he had ever heard. He visited his neighborhood synagogue on a Saturday, just like he did every Saturday as a boy and young carpenter. The head of the synagogue allowed him to come up to teach. St. Luke's Gospel tells us what he did. Jesus unrolled the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and read the passage, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was a passage referring to the Messiah for whom the Jews had long waited. Jesus' homily, his commentary on that passage, was one sentence long. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. St. Mark and St. Luke both tell us that Jesus' listeners' reaction was astonishment. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth and the wisdom that had been given to him. But that quickly changed once they began to reflect on what he said. Jesus was saying that he was the Messiah, that all the words that Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah were being fulfilled in him right then, right there. The future apostle Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, once wondered aloud whether anything good could come from Nazareth. Those in the synagogue likely shared that sentiment because they refused to accept that one they numbered among their own could be the fulfillment of their messianic hopes. They thought they knew him. They already had classified and conquered him. They likely had pieces of furniture he made. Perhaps he had played with their kids or grandkids when he was younger. They just mumbled to themselves to knock him down to size. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Their doubts soon multiplied. And as St. Mark tells us, they began to take offense at Jesus. Not only would they not believe in what he said, but they began to be offended by him. Because if Jesus were the Messiah, it would necessarily change their relationship with him. And in fact, change their whole lives. Jesus knew their thoughts and said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own kin and in his own house. That, St. Luke tells us, filled them with rage. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town had been built so that they might hurl him off the cliff head first. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Notice, in a matter of a few minutes, they went from praising Jesus with amazement to doubts to taking offense at him, to trying to murder him. Not only would they not accept Jesus as a prophet by heeding his words and welcoming him as they would the God who sent him, but they, like preceding generations whom Jesus would say elsewhere, kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, would seek to take his life. Jesus' reaction to all of this was amazement at their lack of faith. In other cities, strangers who didn't know Jesus growing up were willing to leave everything to follow him, were moved and converted by his preaching, and were blown away by his miraculous power, such that with faith they were bringing to him all those who needed help. But among his own, he was rejected and deemed worthy of death. The question we need to ask is, why did they reject him and ultimately try to kill him? St. John gives us the answer in the prologue to his gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. The light came into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want a real Messiah. 
even or especially if he were a native son, because a real Messiah would change their behavior. They wanted to keep their concept of Messiah neatly packaged, unthreatening, in something aspirational in the future. They didn't want a prophet in the here and now, because if Jesus were the Messiah, then their lives would have to change, and they preferred to cling to the darkness. They preferred not to have scripture fulfilled in their hearing. They didn't want to hear the good news preached to the poor. They didn't want to be set free from their self-imposed prison or be cured of their spiritual blindness. But this gospel doesn't refer merely to what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus returned to his hometown. Like every gospel, it must be actualized, applied to the present day. Who are Jesus' own people today? Who are his kinsmen? Who are the modern Nazarenes that he wants to accept him as a prophet and have scripture fulfilled in their midst? We are. Through baptism, we have become true members of Jesus' family, his spiritual brothers and sisters. Through the Eucharist, we can say we have become blood relatives. Many, perhaps most of us, have grown up with the Lord our whole life. We're literally familiar of the same family with him. As with our other relatives, we have pictures of him at home. We celebrate his birthday every December. We mark the most important moment of his life every spring. The question for us is whether we, like the majority of ancient Nazarenes, allow our familiarity with Jesus actually to weaken rather than strengthen our faith. Do we allow our greater contact with Jesus to make us take him for granted or to help us grow in love of him? So we prepare to celebrate the 4th of July and pray for our country. It's important for us to learn the lessons of Nazareth. Nazareth is a tale of two towns. On the one hand, it's a place of the most important welcoming of all time. When Mary, hearing God's proposal through the archangel Gabriel, replied, Let it be done to me according to your word. By the power of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the human race, welcomed God into her womb with faith-filled love. It's also the place where months later, after Mary had returned from helping her cousin Elizabeth and Joseph had seen her very much pregnant, he, with the help of the angel of the Lord who appeared to him to assist him to overcome his fear, welcomed both her and Jesus growing within her into his life and home. Nazareth is first a place of loving welcome. But it's also, as we see in this week's gospel, a place of harsh and even homicidal rejection, where in a heartbeat, Jesus' fellow Nazarenes went from praying to trying to murder the guest preacher. And as we look with love at our country, will we, let's focus on us Catholics and on our Christian brothers and sisters, accept or reject Jesus? Because the United States in 2021 is very much like ancient Nazareth. The question as to whether we will accept or reject Jesus will be seen in whether we accept or reject him as a prophet. Jesus says that no prophet is accepted. Will we accept him? We show whether we have faith in Jesus, but whether we have faith in his words or act and act on them. When Jesus comes to us, his own, as the light of the world, do we love darkness because our deeds are evil, or live and walk in the light of the Lord? When he teaches us about whatever we do to the least of his brothers and sisters we do to him, do we immediately care for him in the littlest of our brethren, those growing in the womb? When he speaks to us about the importance of marriage and God's plan from the beginning is the indissoluble union of one man and one woman, speaks to us about purity of heart and life, do we order our lives to what he teaches, or do we prefer the Barabbas of the sexual revolution? The biggest question of our life is whether we welcome, embrace, and love him, or whether we ignore, reject, and even seek to snuff him out. Part of what has helped make our beloved country strong has been the virtues that flowed from the Christian life, particularly the openness so many citizens and immigrants have had to embracing Jesus, his message and way of life, and who have sought to love God and love their neighbor. There are, thankfully, many who still do. But one of the biggest challenges we face comes from Christians who just give lip service to the gospel, much like many Nazarenes in Jesus' day just gave lip service to the Torah and true messianic hopes. In both situations, the question is whether we'll accept Jesus as a prophet and live by what God teaches, or whether we, preferring darkness to light, will seek to eliminate the message in the messenger. This Christian Sabbath, the same Jesus who came to his own in Nazareth, will come to our parish churches. He will teach us in sacred scripture, which will be fulfilled by him live in our hearing. He will feed us with himself as the word made flesh. Let us ask Our Lady and St. Joseph to help us to welcome him as he desires and deserves, and to assist us, transformed by him, to help our country be grateful and responsive to the grace God has shed on our spacious skies, purple mountain majesties, and fruited plains. God bless you and God bless our country. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 